Okay, this morning we are back in our study of Galatians, and we'll be in chapter 5, verse 1. And uh, again, I'm using the new American Standard 2020 for this study, as we have since the beginning. Um, before we get to Galatians chapter 5 and part 1, I did want to... Um, Helps if you actually put the microphone on. The people online later will appreciate that. <laughs> Before we actually get into Galatians chapter 5 and part, uh, part 1 or verse 1, um, I wanted to talk about something that, that kind of throws us back into Galatians 3 here just for a second. We're going to learn more here about our freedom in Christ, but I wanted to look at a concept that causes some confusion Galatians 3.10 reminds us that all who are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to do them. Fortunately, we're also told in Galatians 3.13 that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Now, it can be easy for us to misunderstand what Scripture intends when discussing the law. Some propose that since the law handed down by Moses was made obsolete by the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, no one born today is under the curse of the law, and therefore no one needs to be freed from that curse. Yet Paul writing after the resurrection of Christ and speaking to the, Gentile, the Galatians who had practiced paganism and were never included in the covenant of the law, says that they had been freed from its curse. These seeming incongruities should cause us to dig deeper and to read the text more carefully. We kind of had a conversation about this idea earlier that when we read the scripture, sometimes we do it through lenses of things that we have understood based on past teaching, but never really looked at the scripture for what it is. And so when we read it, we read past things or we, we, we understand them in a way that is conditioned into us rather than in the way that it actually says. And so I wanted to kind of dig into this because it came up online this week. And I, and I also think that it was something that I, I didn't really cover when we looked at Galatians 3. So these should cause us to dig deeper and read more carefully. If we examine the things that Paul warns against as merely individual actions, the primary example here being circumcision, we miss the point that is most applicable to the Gentiles to whom Paul wrote. We also live after the establishment of the new covenant, and we were never under the covenant of the law because we are Gentiles. And so this point is most applicable to us as well. Paul's point here is not primarily about the ordinances of the Mosaic law practiced by the Jews. It is about that because he's talking about circumcision. But his greater point is, is more than that. His focus is on any kind of behavior designed to merit justification, acceptance, or favor from God. We do ourselves a disservice 
When we as modern day believers read the word law and think only of the 613 ordinances handed down by Moses. In focusing on the law given to the Hebrews, our attention is taken away from the meritorious conduct toward which we find ourselves tempted daily. Instead, we begin to place ourselves under a set of directives that were never given to us in the first place. Like some of you, I spent many years living life on a spiritual roller coaster of failure, groveling, and rededication. The result was that I remained spiritually immature and ineffective. The fruit of the Spirit was underdeveloped and its growth was stunted. Love, joy, and peace were platitudes with little practical meaning for me. This was bondage. It was the curse of the law. I was bound to a system of religious performance that could never obtain the result that it promised. Teaching that indicates that more sacrifice and dedication is the key to victorious spiritual life places a yoke upon the saints that, to use the Apostle Peter's words, neither we nor our ancestors could bear. Such teaching places on our conduct the responsibility for obtaining, and often even for maintaining, justification. It proposes that the continued blessing of God is conditioned upon our behavior, our observance of religious ceremonies, or living a morally exemplary life, or so-called spiritual disciplines. This is what Scripture means when it speaks of the law to those not under the Old Covenant. As Ephesians 2.12 urges, we must remember that we were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the people of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. For us, the term the law includes all conduct, behavior, or work designed to merit God's favor. Understanding this important point then, we can easily grasp how Paul can tell these former pagans who were never under the Old Testament law that Jesus had freed them, and by extension us, from the curse of the law. Galatians 5 and verse 1, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Now, the King James renders this this way. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with a yoke of bondage. In the first four chapters of Galatians, Paul spoke about freedom from something. Paul said that we have been freed from the curse of the law. We've been freed from the power of sin and condemnation. We have been uh, freed from 
the condemnation that results from sin. He's going to shift his focus now to the benefits of that freedom. And we will see that abundant life and spiritual fruit are the result. And at the very outset, we are urged to stand fast, to be anchored in the liberty that is the reason the Lord Jesus has set us free. He set us free so we would be free. This call to remain firmly committed to freedom or liberty is of great importance if we are to experience Christ's life in fullness. A lot of believers wander around going, I don't understand why I don't experience the fullness of my faith or the fullness of the life in Christ, the abundant life that Scripture promised. I don't understand it. I don't have joy. I don't have peace. I don't have patience. I don't have kindness. I don't have goodness. I don't feel very loving. Remaining firmly committed to freedom or liberty is important if we're going to experience those things in fullness. I do want to be clear, however, that I am speaking here of our temporal experience, not of our identity of righteous and blameless children of God. That does not change. Exemplary moral conduct, religious behavior, or laudable works is clearly not the way to God because without faith it is impossible to please God, according to Hebrews 11.6. And we are saved by the grace of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, not by laudable works, not by meritorious conduct. Similarly, seeking to live godly lives by relying on the strength of our will or our dedication to traditions and religious observances will not result in spiritual growth and juicier spiritual fruit. Such things are the curse of the law and they are bondage. They take our focus off the Lord Jesus and put it squarely on ourselves. Most of us know this. At some point in our walk, we've been focused on whether we're sinning or not. How well are we stacking up? Did we do enough? I didn't really want to be involved in that project, but I guess I better do it because that's what good Christians do working out of obligation, working out of duty rather than love and desire. Our focus is on us rather than on God. These things keep our attention on our failures and on our missteps rather than on the Lord Jesus and the work He has finished on our behalf. These obligatory works disregard our identity as holy children of the living God. It is for freedom from this bondage that Christ has set us free. It is for freedom to rest in Him and rely upon His provision that Christ has set us free. It is for freedom to keep our attention on what Father is up to 
that Christ has set us free. It is for freedom to serve and obey Him from the heart, out of true desire, that Christ has set us free. All we are counseled to do is stand firm in this freedom. This directive brings to mind the exhortation that we find in Ephesians 6, 13 and the beginning of 14 to do everything necessary to stand, which is to take up the armor of God and having done so, to stand firm. We stand firm in freedom by carefully culling from our thoughts everything that would prompt us to self-reliance. We stand firm in freedom by resolutely refusing to entertain any idea of our conduct meriting the blessing and favor of God or preventing His wrath. We stand firm in freedom by acknowledging that Father is the source and the power to accomplish everything of lasting value. We stand firm in freedom by waiting in dependence on Him and trusting Him to energize our doing. We stand firm in freedom by willingly participating in the things He sets in our path and leaving the outcomes to Him. I need to read that about six times because I love to try to control outcomes. When things are going on around me and I feel like they're starting to slide in a bad direction, I want to step in and take the reins and haul them back. Because somebody might be angry or somebody might get hurt or be upset. I could be tempted to be dishonest or to cover things up so that those negative outcomes are avoided. But rather than being good, that makes things worse. I need to read this again and again. That we need to leave the outcome to Him. Can it be painful? Absolutely. This is how we share in the sufferings of Christ. Galatians 5, 2-6 Look, I, Paul, tell you that if you have yourselves circumcised, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who has himself circumcised that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Agreeing with Paul, James 2.10 tells us that whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. The law handed down by Moses is an indivisible unit. It is for this reason that it is referred to as the law in the singular rather than in the plural, the laws. It is a unit because the directives and ordinances that comprise it 
are all the components of a single covenant between God and the Hebrew people ratified by blood. In the case of the Galatian believers, they were being tempted to Judaize themselves and look to adherence to the Jewish system of performance-based righteousness for their justification and acceptance by God. In our case today, Judaic law may or may not figure into our religious views. Circumcision today is viewed as a health issue, not as a symbol of a relationship with God. While some want to adhere to parts of the law handed down by Moses, the Ten Commandments, tithing, food selection, observance of special days, and so on, none of them observe animal sacrifice. For most of us, the real issue is religious observances put in place by the institutions with which we are or have been involved. This is our circumcision. Every week I hear from people who have been told that they don't measure up with God. They've been told they'll face punishment or fail to be blessed unless they do certain things. Some of those things include religious disciplines like reading the Bible for a specified minimum time each day, or wearing or never wearing clothing of a certain type, or giving a minimum of 10% to their local religious institution. Make no mistake, giving is a good thing, but it's not about percentages, it's not about duties. Giving is to be from the heart, we're told in Corinthians. Sometimes it's about the performance of specific acts of evangelism and witnessing, and the list goes on and on in churches across the nation. Neither observance of the law handed down by Moses, nor faithful dedication to the rules, rites, and rituals of institutional religion can give us eternal life. It doesn't come from that. Neither can such works acquire additional blessing. Neither can those works prevent calamity befalling us in this life. We are in the world, not of it. As regards salvation, imperfection is imperfection. If we have missed the mark, the mark has been missed. We are unable to make ourselves completely perfect. Therefore, we have failed. It makes no difference if we failed spectacularly or if we only failed subtly. If we try to achieve the unachievable, Christ is of no benefit to us. He has left the gift of righteousness and salvation on our doorstep well enough but we have chosen to reject it in favor of what seems right to us according to the flesh. Now for we who are in Christ, the same is true of our ongoing relationship with God. Life in Christ is a life of faith. It is a life of dependence. It is a life of entrusting Him with our well-being. When we live by depending on our own power and entrust our well-being to religious observances and acting like everything is under control, our faith is in our conduct 
and our ability to control outcomes. When we live this way, even though we have not lost our inheritance, our eternal life, Christ is of no practical benefit to us in this life. We're riding a spiritual roller coaster. We're ineffective. We're miserable. The text goes on, You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. The passage there continues with a rather startling statement. It says that anyone who's attempting to merit justification, acceptance, or blessing by their own works is severed from Christ. Or as the King James puts it, Christ has become of no effect to you. A single Greek word is being translated here. That word is ketargeo, which the New American Standard translates severed. And as I already pointed out, the King James has become no effect to you, translates that one word. Other translations like the New International Version render ketargeo alienated from. The more robust lexicons and dictionaries like Bauer Danker, which some call BDAG, and the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, TDNT or Kittle, agree that the better way to render this is estranged. And indeed, the New King James has the word estranged here. Kittle points out that this is the deliberative use of the term to take from the sphere of, op of operation. To take from the sphere of operation. This use is found in two references. Romans 7.6, which speaks of our having been released, or in the King James, delivered from the law. And here in Galatians 5.4, where those seeking justification by the law, by works, are said to have become estranged from or severed from the sphere of Christ's operation. What this all means is that they would miss out on the temporal benefits of their new life in Christ Jesus. Instead, while still connected to Him, they would become estranged from Him. People know this. Many talk about falling out of fellowship with God. Or God turning His face from them. Now, Father doesn't do that to His children. But as His children, we can certainly cease listening to Him. We can elect not to yield to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. We can turn from the path on which He is leading us, petulantly returning to the worldly way of life in which we try to take responsibility for supplying our needs apart from Him. You know, God is my co-pilot. But I'm driving the bus. Teenage angst is one example many of us may be able to understand. Whether it was us or our children or the children of a close friend, most have seen adolescent behavior. 
behavior that pretends that parents know nothing of value and refuses to hear words of caution or advice. If these attitudes continue, the child may well find that they have fallen from grace and parental support for their choices has dried up. Consequently, they will no longer enjoy the benefits of daily life sponsored by their parents, instead finding themselves responsible for their own daily needs. Falling from grace has become something of a cliché. It's common for us to refer to someone famous who has done something damaging to their image as having fallen from grace. In some Christian circles, people within the fellowship who stop attending or fall into sin are referred to the same way, or often it's said they're backsliding. I want to point this out because for many the terms backslidden or fallen from grace can imply a loss of salvation. Angsty teenagers do not lose their identity as members of the family. Their parents, barring severe dysfunction or mental illness, do not cease to have their best interests at heart. In the same way, believers do not lose their salvation. Father has promised never to leave or forsake them. And he said that nothing can separate them from his love. Nevertheless, when believers stop living according to their identity as holy, righteous, and blameless children of God and instead seek life in something other than the Lord Jesus, the result is a lack of spiritual fruit. Verse 3 of Galatians 5. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. We are righteous now but we still physically exist amid all these evils. One day we will leave this place to dwell with our lovely Lord Jesus in eternity. And the hope of righteousness is the settled expectation that one day we will see Father face to face. As we're told in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. It is the expectation of life apart from all influence of evil where there is no death, no mourning, no pain, as we are promised in Revelation 21.4. Paul is sure to clarify for us that we wait for this final state through the Spirit and by faith. As Titus 2.13 helps us to see, we are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In this, as in all things, we walk by faith and not by sight. Spiritual life in Christ Jesus has never been about outward signs or appearances. 1 Samuel 16, 7 tells us that people look on outward appearances, but the Lord looks at the heart. 
Paul uses circumcision as his example for the Galatians because the Judaizers had been pressing them on this outward sign in particular. Instead of concerning themselves with rites and ceremonies and laws, Paul counsels the Galatians to understand that the freedom the Lord Jesus Christ has given them by faith is to be expressed through love. This is a pivotal point. James says that faith without works is dead. Paul told the Roman saints that love fulfills the law. And just a few verses down from where we are in Galatians, in verse 14, he says the same thing to the Galatians. The whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That one word is love. It is not adherence to religious rules. It is not devotion to religious rituals. It is not dedication to spiritual disciplines that shows people Christ in us. Rather, it is our love. Faith in God is a wonderful thing. But that faith gets to do something of value when it's expressed through love. Holy Spirit in us is producing fruit in keeping with His sterling character. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. These are some of the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, of the character of God within us. This fruit is born by us, by the Spirit through faith, and it is expressed or worked out through love. Circumcision and uncircumcision are nothing Religious performances, duties, works, meritorious conduct is nothing. What matters is faith working itself out through love. When we demonstrate love, the world sees Christ in us. I know and I can tell you from experience that that's not always obvious. I know what it's like to love for, for years without knowing that it's having any effect. But I have also seen it have effect even after years of not knowing. Faith working itself out through love. We said earlier today that faith is a shield that extinguishes the fiery darts of the enemy, the flaming arrows, all those lies, all those, those accusations. And it is by clinging to the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ in us and for us 
and with us and through us that victory is found, that abundant life is found. It doesn't have to do with rules, rites, and rituals. It is dependence by faith. It is entrusting to God our well-being. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for this book of Galatians and the incredible truth it contains. Father, I, I just pray that you would open our hearts and minds to really understand the depth and breadth of the meaning of our freedom in Christ. Not that we would go around flaunting it and acting like the world and pretending that's okay. That's not what this is about. We don't go on sinning because grace will increase, as Paul said. It's just silliness. But Father, when we have freedom and we're not working towards something with some idea that this is going to gain us merit, when we obey from the heart out of true desire, the world sees that that's different. It's not what they expect. I pray that we would exhibit this great love you've poured all over our new hearts in ways we can't currently even imagine. I pray, Father, that you would drive home the, the, the truth of our freedom for which you have set us free. I pray that you would give us strength to stand fast in it. And that the world would see. Not us, but you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.